This now is what I need to do all the time. Now let's live into the future. Um, oh, this is where it goes off let, the rails again. Yeah, and think a little bit about what's on the horizon. And maybe, maybe it's just worth saying, confining most more of this talk to the science of ENSO as opposed to the, the prediction. And maybe the prediction is, is as, we, as we discussed in the last time, when we sort of alluded to it, it was less convincing then than it is now that an El Nino will take shape. Although I don't think the story has changed from the end of the monsoon season in September, there was still the idea then was a sort of a weak, maybe moderate El Nino event. We're still in an El Nino watch. It's most likely going to evolve to a weakish event around hovering around that sort of definition. So yeah, what's your take on on the prediction on the on Enso right now, Mike? Not uh, on not on the science. Let's okay. What else is there to 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 say about Enso? Uh, it's like Groundhog Day. I, you know, it's. I feel like we've had this discussion in November before. I mean, it's because we we have had a, have had this discussion in November before. You know, the seasonality of Enso development is development over the summer and typically peaks December January, right? So we're we're in between, and we typically are looking at sea surface temperature pattern. We're looking at primarily sea surface temperature pattern, subsurface temperatures to give us some indication of where an El Nino event might go. Mm-hmm. And right now we have the pieces where we see the sea surface temperature pattern as, as I think you noted that we see the warming in the part of the Pacific that you'd expect to see with a maturing El Nino event, but we don't see the atmosphere responding yet. And it's kind of a mixed bag when you look at across the agencies of who's calling what. Ben noted to us that the Japanese meteorological agency is called it. So called it an El Nino. Called an El Nino. I think the Australians have not, right? We, I don't uh, think uh, NOAA has NOAA either. is still in watch, as you noted. Yep. So we're we're in this weird kind of wait and see. And so I think- And the coupling is important because it reinforces- <laughs> There's no point yeah. in us worrying about El Nino if it doesn't couple, and, right? And, the, and that's because the coupling is with the atmosphere. Absolutely, yeah. And it's and the atmosphere that brings our- yeah. The teleconnection rain, does yeah. not exist if the um, coupling doesn't occur. Right, and so and the teleconnection is is that when we have an El Nino event, we see an adjustment in the jet stream that typically moves the whole jet stream and strengthens to the east across the Pacific Ocean and strengthens the subtropical jet, which can enhance our southern storm track and give us more moisture than we would expect to see <coughs> during, a, say, a La Nina winter, where the storm track is more northerly displaced. So this idea that the coupling hasn't occurred yet is not. It's not catastrophic. It would be better if it had by this point in time. It would give us a little bit more confidence that we would see a sustained event. Could it couple soon? Absolutely. Could couple in two weeks and we could see it sort of play out. Could it not? Yes. <laughs> it could also it could also fizzle out. There seems to be some evidence, though, in the short term that the, there's warm water in the subsurface that we expect to see come to the surface. And the word is shoal. Shoal. I wanted to I was set you up. Man. I wasn't listening. I know you weren't. I could tell. Shoal. <laughs> that warm water will, will shoal. Well, you go on these it. monologues and it's- I do. I, I start I, doing other work. And then I get bored. And then I'm looking around going, am I still no, that talking? Was, I was, no, I was so, listening. I just didn't know what we're totally you true. to say. Totally true. Uh, yeah. I think I kind of wrapped it up like three, No, it was great. Three I, sentences I, I learn every time I do these podcasts. Um, I kind of see the same thing over and over again. So <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship, I think, with Enzo as maybe many- climate scientists I do, do. I do too. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed my angst in yeah. just the whole this whole concept. And so here's the love. You know, when you look at 
uh, the correlations between the things that are impactful here in the Southwest. Let's just say precipitation. There's also higher correlations with temperature, but in terms of precipitation, it's the the, fun, the climate phenomenon that you can point to at sort of a seasonal scale that has the highest correlations, right? So there's something there. Yeah, yeah. And it's usually in the winter. Yep. Uh, it's actually, I think, only Almost in the winter. Almost always in the yeah. winter, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the love because, you know, without it, you know, you're just a meteorologist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that was, that was not a, a criticism. That was a compliment. I'm talking about... <laughs> But they, <laughs> but they, <laughs> but the hate is that you know those correlations, as you said before, are 0.5. So they're explaining, you know, 25 percent of the variance. So in a sense, you're look, you're 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 crinkling your brow, which makes me feel like I'm saying something. No, wrong. I, I was I just had pulled up one of my plots because I was like 0.5, and then I, I looked at one of our stronger correlation, and I actually have 0.4. Oh, <laughs> so right, right. I think it went down with some more data points. Right, and that ma- and and, the, and those correlations ma- matter. The strength of those matter to where you are in in, in what month. So mm-hmm. that it's not treating uh, the Southwest as this monolithic thing. So so. 75% of the variance then is is open to all of these other things. I think on the one hand, if you think about this with like a a, a card game, a poker example, right? If I know one or two of your of your cards in five card draw, like I feel pretty good about that. Yep. And so there's something there. I mean, if I had, I don't know, just extend this. If I had like three kings and I knew that you didn't have in one of your two cards or in both of your cards, they weren't aces. I feel pretty good that I'm going to win that, win that card game yeah not to say that you can't have three aces right well it's shifting the odds right i mean just knowing what you have to work with right and so then i i guess this takes me to thinking about these correlations a little bit more and usually the analysis or maybe not usually but much of the analysis just looks at this a sort of simple treatment of the sea surface temperatures and relates it to precipitation but as we've learned recently the spatial pattern in the tropical Pacific Ocean matters a lot. Yeah, and and maybe even sort of backing up one step, let's let's just talk a little bit about or just state the fact that El Nino is a slowly varying phenomenon on the order of seasons to years is its strength. The fact that it is something that you can observe and you know that it will have some staying power right. like over a period of months and you know that it may then change the mean state or the average state of of the ocean and then the overlying atmosphere gives us that feel. It's like what it's you know it's it's your poker analogy yeah, is that it, it you, there's information in yeah. it, right? If it was moving quickly, it would It'd be, be less useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Right. And it's it's where we have other phenomenon like Madden-Julian oscillation where we're leveraging it, but it's weather scale and it has some predictable patterns across the globe, and it will get into states and phases. And we're using that on the multi-week to month timescale to leverage. And it's imperfect as well. And so we've these there's there aren't very many tools where, as you observe some part of the climate system moving in a direction, that you can anticipate where it may be in a couple of weeks or months, right? Mm-hmm. So it's those slowly evolving phenomena. So that's what ENSO is, right? But to your point, we got... I think collectively pretty burned by the 2015-2016. I think we were anticipating a fairly canonical impact 
yeah. wet here in the Southwest. Wet here in the Southwest because we've seen other events of similar magnitude do the same thing, but it was small numbers. Yeah, so just to put this in context, that 15-16 El Nino event was the strongest on record. And yeah. It outpaced the 97-98 event and the 82-83 event, which were the two other mega El Ninos. Absolutely. Nicely done. Right. And those two years, 97-98, 82-83, generated much above average precipitation. Yeah, so they they were hanging out in a territory of strong events, so we expected that one to follow suit, and it did not. Okay. You know, for, we'll for, throw yeah. the statistical classes that we took out the window on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we knew small numbers are not, we had a linear correlation that we expected to follow with strength, but there had been some stuff in the literature that had suggested that the flavor of the El Nino mattered. And we kind of knew that. And it did look though, at, as this thing was evolving, that it was going to be of the flavor that was similar to 97, 98 and 82, 83, but it didn't end up being that way. <laughs> right. So the two things that I think have been most interesting from my perspective, as I've read the the recent papers and, and traced the evolution of ENSO thinking, is one, it's that the locus of convection in the tropical Pacific Ocean and, the, and, the, and related the pattern of sea surface warming matters. It tugs the atmospheric strings in different ways. Uh-huh. And so you can't just treat ENSO as you can't average over a particular area and Put, put a number and then correlate that to something else, that there's actually nuance within that area. So yeah. that's one thing. The other thing that, that was really interesting to me was thinking about these events themselves are influenced by different processes that are acting across a spectrum of timescales. Yeah. So from these weather timescales, like these westerly wind events matter in kicking off and sustaining these events. And those those seemingly happen on weather timescales. Absolutely, yep. And then there's much longer-term processes, such as the, the – I know there's controversy around this, but there does some, seem to be some relationship with the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and some other climate phenomenon that, at least descriptively, are, are moving at much slower timescales years to decades. Yeah. And anything in between. Absolutely. Right. There's what they call internal stochastic variability. So it's like sort of weather noise forcing. And then there's this, there's this kind of analog of the ENSO system where we think of it as sort of charging up uh, as a battery with all this warm water building up in the West Pacific. And then it has to discharge. And as it discharges, it can do this in a kind of a myriad of ways. And at some point, it will have to discharge. It can do it slowly and it can do it kind of in a clumsy way. Um, through some of these sort of mid-Pacific and do it over a period of years and not necessarily have the teleconnections with it. Sometimes it can do it all at once, like uh, I did with 9798 or 8283, where it just sends a big slug of water over there. There's much cooler water in the West Pacific. It's all in the East Pacific, collapse of the trade winds, and then all that, the teleconnections emerge from that. And then the system actually has to build warm water back up in the West Pacific before you can even think about having another El Nino event, right? And so we've been more in this sort of slow, leaky battery kind of um, discharging over the last couple of years, even with the 2015-2016 event, which is why I think we're leaning into seeing another event right now. Another thing, so you, you, you sort of mentioned this, I think, unless I, unless I was hearing you talking my... Um, but one of the difference between the 97-98 and the 2015-2016 was just where in the tropical yeah. Pacific that warm water was. Super subtle, too, because if you look at the maps, we were looking at the maps, 2015-2016, slightly more central Pacific. 97-98 was a hardcore eastern Pacific event. So warmer water 
yeah. Collapse the trade winds, a ceasing of upwelling on the South American coast for the most part. And as you talked about earlier, that where that warm water is is going to draw the anomalous convection or the, the unusual convection further east along the equator. And so the further east you move that, the more it can lead to that subtropical teleconnection that we would see in the southwest. If it's more out in the central Pacific mm. or even on the other side of the dateline, called central Pacific event, and its teleconnection then is, it absolutely does impact the jet stream. It just doesn't impact it in a way that's useful for us. Like remember 2015, 2016, we had that anomalous convection, but it was in the central Pacific and it was influencing and enhancing the jet stream, but it was far enough west that there was a flick in the jet stream. So as those enhanced storms started to roll into the the California coast, they were going over Northern California and into the Pacific Northwest. If we had moved that whole thing to the east, you would have seen that storm track drop south and then come over us. Were the westerly wind events or wind bursts, they were more to the east in 97, 98. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, looking at, at this paper that you and I were reviewing, was, there was a couple of big ones that, on, that really kicked it off. And then the westerly wind events themselves sort of followed the temperature gradient, which was emerging further mm-hmm. east. And so you did see them occurring a little more frequently and further east with the 97, 98 event. Through 2014 and 2016, we had a mess of them, uh, westerly wind events, which is why we we're so excited. And we saw, we thought this thing was really going to kick Remember, in. this was that double dip, right? Like yeah, it yeah. Sort it of was 20, the, the, we did it in 2015. I don't even yeah. know if 2015, 2014, 2015 it made wasn't the cut. A, it wasn't, oh, it might not. Have. I think yeah, it did. I think it was marginal yeah. if it was weak. But it was interesting. You saw warming across the whole eastern Pacific, but it was the magnitude wasn't particularly great. You didn't see the anomalous convection. And then it did finally kick in, but not of the magnitude of the 97-98. And so I don't think you saw the anomalous convection of the magnitude and of the duration that you'd wanted to, and it was displaced. So what creates, what, what leads to these westerly wind events? Well, sometimes they're typhoons in the far western Pacific. They can be off equatorial typhoons. They can be Mandulian oscillation type. They can be sort of... Uh, is there any Waves prediction that, in them? Uh, yeah. At the subseasonal level? Or? Well, it's weather time scale yeah. at that point. And it, it, at that point, it has to be, is it in the right spot at the right time to induce like a Kelvin wave of uh, an oceanic Kelvin wave to, to, that will progress to the east? So then relating that to what's going on right now, it did look to me when I looked at the sea surface temperature maps that we're sort of more in the flavor of a Central Pacific El Nino than we are in East Pacific. And of course, we're at a weak level. So I'm not even sure it's that meaningful to talk about Central and East Pacific El Ninos in like a sort of borderline event. Yeah. Looking at the Climate Prediction Center output as of late, some of the discussions, (laughs) it's pretty lukewarm. As we talked about earlier, there's warm water coming up within a Kelvin wave coming across so some of that warm water will shoal in the eastern Pacific, which could help. Maybe it would change some of the spatial structure of it. I don't know. It doesn't still doesn't look like it'll be that East Pacific-y at this point. And the models certainly are leaning towards it being more of a Central Pacific event. I don't know. It could be real subtle. Yeah. There's a Madden-Julian oscillation right now that is constructively interfering with ENSO, which 
would suggest that it would help with some of the coupling, but I haven't I'm seen sure that. Interfering is the right word. It's kind of weird, you know. Constructively like, interfering. When I t- when you say like constructively interfering versus destructively interfering, I had to think about that. Sorry, that's my my mom. No, it's good. And maybe I've even been influence like, on me. It's good. I can. I read that and I went, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm I'm still not sure, but I think it's a good thing. But the discussion also noted too that the if there is any coupling, it's it's past the dateline to the west, which is too way too far for it to happen. So, and this is where we're now at the weather time scale of El Nino to see if we can start to s- see some weather scale features um, enhance the coupling or, or start the coupling. We have talked about in the past that strength does matter. I mean, this is one of the, in, in terms of its impact on precipitation, at least for California, I did some recent reading and there are very weak links if significant at all, between a weak El Nino and a moderate El Nino and California precipitation, whereas there are stronger associations with uh, a strong El Nino. That's probably similar to Southern Arizona. If you look across Arizona and we just organize the uh, strength of ENSO versus seasonal precipitation, just say like maybe um, we take the core winter, the December, January, February, if I look at southeastern Arizona, so it's everything of Pima County across the southern counties up through Graham and Greenlee, the correlation between ENSO strength and seasonal precip is about 0.5, right? So 25% of the variance. And you see as you get further out in ENSO strength, precip totals typically go up except for 2015, 2016. And La Nina's are fairly consistently drier than average. So the models are suggesting about a one degree sea surface temperature anomaly, which is weak, right. you know. And if we look at past events at that threshold, they're not great. Like we have a couple of, we have a couple of very dry years that are below the La Nina averages mm. there. We've got maybe nineteen eighty seven was almost kind of on the High variability, though. That's exactly it. And I think that that's the point of some of these analyses is that the spread increases in kind of in the middle, you know, where you're away from the strength of that. If this thing strengthens, I mean, I I kept thinking maybe a good analog would be 2009, 2010. Uh, We had an El Nino event come on late, and it strengthened quite quickly through December. This is, remember, we were working on the FEMA project. We talked about flooding events Mm -hmm. in Arizona. And that was a year where January ended up being record snowfall in Flagstaff, and we had 10 inches of rain in Globe and that kind of stuff. But this is where we're at. I don't really know. It's, it, I think your analogy is that we have some information. It's certainly not a La Nina, so I think that we can— um, We can say it's not a La Nina? We can say it's not a La Nina. We can say it won't be a La Nina, which means that it's not you know like a slam dunk for it being below average. But it doesn't mean below average isn't on the table for this particular winter. But it does suggest we have more opportunity on the wet side as well. <laughs> so, so not useful. You know, we're kind of dancing around. I think we're less excited about this because we got burned recently. This thing is leaning towards the It's also a weak Pacific. event. It's a weak event. It's a Central Pacific. Yeah. All of the characteristics of El Nino I like the least are all present this year. Well, so How's that for yeah. cheery? Jeez. I know. All right. You know uh, what I'm rooting for? Well, MJO. <laughs> it's all MJO all winter. That's what I'm, man, MJO it. 
Well, this is what happens when you know we skip a month as we end up. Sp- I know we're talking like for an hour and a half. Up. Yeah, pent up. Yeah, um, we have to do a holiday one though um, with hot chocolate and uh, candy canes next month. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I, I put I it like on that. your calendar. I, I got it. All right, Mike. Thanks again. Thanks, Zach. Catch yeah, you next month. Thanks, everybody. For happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of Clemus, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with Clemus, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, research outreach and assessment specialist with Clemus. Holy moly, man. We were pent up. Dude, cancel your meeting. It's ridiculous.